You have been listening to sermon audio from Day 3 Church. We invite you to join us for one of our worship services. For more information, visit day3church.com. I could go home right now. Found that this week, and that, that video, every time I've watched it this week, and decided to use it today, I tell you, that just kind of rocked my world, you know? Um, some of you are thinking, what was all that? Because you, you don't know what Twitter is. Most of you probably know what Twitter is. And it was just like, you know, given a, uh, a modern-day conception of people uh, following Jesus or unfollowing Jesus. So maybe on this Easter Sunday, it ought to challenge us as to whether or not we are following Jesus or whether or not sometimes in our lives we're following Him and then we decide to click unfollow for a little bit of a time in our life so we can go do what we want to do. We ought to be challenged by that. And the thing I loved about it is at the end, when it depicted the resurrection, follow, 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 follow. See, that's what we ought to do and why we ought to follow Him. Because Jesus did not stay dead. If Jesus had remained in the tomb, then there'd be no reason for us to be here today. Last week, we focused on the, on the crucifixion of Jesus, and we looked at how excruciating the pain was that He went through and how He suffered for us. And I want us to focus today a, a little bit on the resurrection, but we're doing a series on doctrine. And the doctrine we're really talking about today is, is our mission. In other words, why are we here as a church? Why does the church exist? And, and I know you might have come today thinking, well, the message will be about, if you weren't here last week, the message will be about the, you know, the crucifixion of Jesus, resurrection of Jesus, because sometimes we anticipate things like that on certain holidays. You know, the incarnation of Christmas, crucifixion at Easter. So much so that sometimes, somehow, we turn it into a safe message for us. To where we feel comfortable with it because that's what we expect. I, I really felt led for us not to do that this year. I could have designed this series on doctrine to where today would have been on the crucifixion. But I really felt like God was saying... Do the crucifixion the week before Easter. And on Easter, let's focus on, in light of what Jesus did for us, what should we do? And Because Jesus did what he did for us on the cross and took his life back up, what should the church be about? But before we jump into that, we are going to talk some about the resurrection of Christ. You see, the resurrection is essential. I mean, this series on doctrine, we talked about one Sunday about the incarnation and how imperative the incarnation is in doctrine because we would not have a Savior if Jesus were not virgin born, God in the flesh. And we talked about the crucifixion, how imperative that is. He, as the only possible perfect eternal sacrifice for our sins, died for us to pay for our sins so that through Him we can have everlasting life. Those two things are essential, but the resurrection is essential also because without the resurrection, Jesus is delegated down to being just like some other 
religious leader in this world that people are following, and yet you can go to their tomb. Jesus said this about himself. I am the resurrection and the life. Jesus was not just resurrected from the dead. He is the resurrection and the life. He's our resurrection and our life through faith in Him. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. The resurrection of Christ is is extremely, extremely important. See, if Jesus were still dead, here's the thing about that. Christianity would be dead. But because Jesus is alive, Christianity is alive. Paul wrote these words in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 17. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. You want to see how necessary the resurrection of Jesus is? If it didn't happen, then the faith that we have, what we're doing today, all of it would be for naught. It would be vain. I mean, if Jesus were not risen from the dead, there's no Savior, there's no salvation, there's no forgiveness, there's no hope beyond the grave, there's no hope of going to heaven, no hope of living an everlasting life in His presence if He were still buried. If Jesus were still in the tomb, to be honest with you, what we ought to do right now is get up, leave, lock the doors of this place, and never ever come back if Jesus were still in the grave. Thank God He's not. So before we get into our main message about what should we do in light of what he's done for us, I want you to see, and by the way, I'm not going to go into this in detail, in that you've got an insert in your updates that have, has on it what I'm about to bring up on the screen. But I want you to see several reasons why the resurrection is true. And do a Bible study at home. You can read through these verses later. One, Jesus' resurrection was prophesied in advance in the Bible. Isaiah, hundreds of years before Jesus died on the cross and was buried, said that he would prolong his days. Jesus predicted his own resurrection. Several places he did that in the New Testament. Jesus actually died. You see, there's some people who claim, well, he didn't really die. They just thought he died. He just kind of waned away a little bit on the cross, and they took him, put him in the tomb. The coolness of the tomb kind of revived him. He got up and came out, but he didn't really die. Hey, I want to remind you of something. One, he committed his spirit into the Father's hand, bowed his head, and gave up the ghost. Two, to be sure that he was dead, a soldier went by and put a spear all the way up into his heart just to be sure that he was really dead. So that's pretty dead, okay? Spear through your heart, you're pretty dead. He really literally died. Next one. Jesus was buried in a tomb that was easy to find. It wasn't a hidden place. People could have gone there. They could have found it. People, in fact, did go there. Some of his disciples went there. They put a guard on it trying to keep him in place. It wasn't like it was someplace that could not go and be observed whether or not he had really risen from the dead. After the crucifixion and resurrection, he appeared in a physical body. They touched him. They felt him. Thomas reached out and touched the wounds. They gave him food to eat, and he ate literal physical body. Jesus raised from the dead. Jesus' resurrection was recorded shortly after it occurred. Mark did not tell the people who the name of the high priest was. Here's why. It was written so close to the time that it happened, he knew that everyone would know the name of the high priest. So very quickly was it written down and recorded. Next. Jesus' resurrection convinced his own family to worship him as God. Now think about that. (laughs) 
If, if your brother or sister once started saying, I'm divine, I'm God, are you ready just to start worshiping them? James had a problem with it till after the resurrection. <laughs> and then James thought, yeah, he is who he said he was. James, his half-brother, began to worship him as God. Jesus' resurrection was confirmed by those who at one time were his enemies, such as the apostle Paul. Paul was such an enemy, Paul would not have started worshiping Jesus as God unless he had met the resurrected Lord as he did. The disciples of Jesus sealed their testimonies of his resurrection in their own blood. I'm sorry, guys, but if I'm propagating a lie and someone tells me you can either change your story or live or we're going to kill you, if it's a lie, I think I'm going to say, hey, I'm going to change my story. But they died to seal their testimony. And we worshiped it on Sunday. Why? Because that's when the resurrection occurred. Now, that's just some quick things for you to understand how vital, how important the resurrection of Jesus is. What we're really going to spend our rest of the time doing today is this. We're going to look at the doctrine of the mission of the church. Why does the church exist? On this Easter Sunday, when we think about Jesus dying for us and Jesus taking his life back up, that through him we ought to have everlasting life. We have everlasting life through him by faith in him. We need to be confronted with this fact. Because he did that for me, what should I do for him? Because Jesus died for the church, what should we do for him? Paul writes this in Ephesians. Christ loved the church. And gave himself up for her. Jesus loved the church enough to die for the church. And to me, it just makes maybe a little bit of logical sense, along with some doctrinal sense, that if Jesus loved us enough to die for us, should not we love him enough to live for him? Because Jesus came on this mission, he left heaven and he invaded this earth like a missionary coming into the culture of this world and accomplish the mission that God the Father sent God the Son upon to purchase salvation for us. In light of Him being that type of missionary, should not we be a missionary for Him? What should the church be about? What is our our mission as the church? We're going to look at three words. We're going to look at definition. And then we're going to look at perception and see maybe how some people perceive the church today. And then lastly, we're going to look at mission. What we ought to be about. Number one is this, definition. What is the church? I mean, what is meant by that? Now, some of you are thinking, well, that's really elementary. I know what the church is. After all, I go there sometimes on Sundays, you know, it's brick and build it, you go in, you know, some of them have steeples, crosses, things like that. So you'd be surprised how many people get wrong what the church is. So, so that's why we need to get a good definition and understand what is meant by the church. The first time the word appears is found in Matthew chapter 16, verse 18. And here's what Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. Just some basic things in that before we kind of move on. Jesus said that it was his church. See, sometimes we get the perception, well, the church is mine. 
You know, sometimes pastors may act like, well, the church is mine. Or deacons may act like, well, the church is mine. After all, I grew up in it. Grandma brought me here and everything like that. And people start acting like it belongs to them. I'm sorry I've got news for you. I did not, you did not, none of us died and shed our blood for the church. It's not my church. It's not your church. It's his church. Jesus said he will build his church. He didn't say I might build it. He said, I will build it. And that doesn't mean that God can't lead us to strategies or programs and things like that to use. But I'm telling you, if we think we can build the church apart from Jesus, we're crazy. He's the one that will build the church. And he said, the gates of Hades, I love this, will not overpower the church. We don't need to act like we're locked in the four walls of the church on the defense all the time because hell is so coming against us. We're supposed to be the ones that are on the offense. We're the ones that are supposed to be attacking the gates of hell. You understand that gates, a gate is not an offensive weapon. People don't pick up a gate and go to battle with it. It's given us the image of the church being the one that's bombarding the gates of hell. That's just some basic things up front. So as we try and decide what the church is and what the church is not, that's exactly what we're going to do. We're going to look at it in two contrasting phrases or terms. First of all, what the church is not. What the church is not. Church is not a building. And yet some people talk about it like that. The church being a building. We think about it as a building to where certain things can take place and certain things don't take place. It's like we've got a to-do list. You go to church, and while you're at church, you do these spiritual things like pray, sing, and preach. And then sometimes we've got a don't-do list, like don't run or laugh or have any fun at church. Will you show me that in the Bible? I mean, just show it to me. I mean, all through my life, there's been this thing, you know, parents will, for some reason, they'll get on to their kids when the kids are running at church, and, and, you know, maybe I had that mentality years ago, but I, I started looking for it. It's not in the Bible, and, and I almost want to lean over and tell parents sometimes when they say, don't run in church, I almost want to say, don't tell them not to run in church. I might run in church. I mean, if you're running in church for the right reason, what's wrong with having fun and running in church? And it's not a building, but we think about it in those terms. The church is not a Eucharistic society. That means, you know, you just come together and you have, have mass and that takes care of everything. It's not a place where you just show up for a quick stop to have the sacraments dispensed to you and you show up and as long as you do that and go through the motions, everything's okay and then you go live however you want to live the rest of the time. Now, before someone thinks I'm just taking a shot at Roman Catholics or other people that do that, let me apply it to Baptists for a minute. The church is also not some place you just go to on Sunday so you feel better about yourself, and then you go live however you want to live the rest of the week, and you show back up when you need another good feel fix about yourself by going to church. That's not church. The church is not the moral police force of society. Man, we act like it sometimes. And we'll act like we're the modern-day Pharisees that we're supposed to monitor morality. 
And we'll spend time, you know, trying to modify behavior by man-made rules. I don't know if you've ever figured this out or not, but apart from being regenerated by the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, by His shed blood and the Holy Spirit living in us, we don't have the power to do the churchy things that we expect a lost and a dying world to do. And we do more damage probably to the gospel and to the growth of the church by us acting like we're the morality police. And that's not what the church is supposed to be about. The church is not also the headquarters for political policy. I, I'll just tell you up front, I, I'm trying to offend every one of you today, okay? The church is not the place to fly a flag of being underneath the Democratic Party or the Republican Party or the Independent Party or the Tea Party or a Communist Party or whatever type of party you want to come up with. The church is to be underneath the flag of Jesus Christ. And yet, if we're not careful, we'll make the church a place that just wants to propagate a political agenda. The church is to propagate a Jesus agenda. Now, you've heard me say this before, but if you're sitting back waiting around for the next election thinking it's going to fix things in America, have you not figured this out? Here's why things are screwed up in America. Politicians. Whatever party. I'll say more about this in a minute. We don't need another politician. We need a king sitting on his throne in front of our hearts. The church is not a weekly meeting place of spiritual activities. In, in other words, we come here once a week, and while we're here, we practice spiritual activities. That's not the church, because the church is not a building. You are the church, if you know Christ as your Savior. Yes, we are to be involved in spiritual activities, but you don't just do it here in the four walls of the church. We're to do it out there. So that's just some things that the church is not. So what should the church be then? Thankfully, we can find out some things by looking in the Bible. Even the word that's translated church, the Greek word ekklesia, means gathering or meeting. But it most basically means this, a calling out or called out ones. And the church is this. The church is the fact that we were lost in sin and Jesus came and he called us out to himself. And when he called us to himself by faith in him, he takes us from where we were in our lost condition and he adopts us into the family of God and we're the called out ones. There's a definition in, in the book Doctrine that uh, Mark Driscoll wrote uh, along with Jerry Bashirs. that says this, the local church is a community of regenerated believers who confess Jesus Christ as Lord. Let me stop there just for a second. To really be part of the church, it goes beyond just having your name on a membership roll. Because you can join every church in the world, and if you don't know Christ as your Savior, you're still lost. The local church is a community of regenerated believers who confess Jesus Christ as Lord. In obedience to Scripture, they organize under qualified leadership. They gather regularly for preaching and worship, observe the biblical sacraments of baptism and communion, are unified by the Spirit, are disciplined for holiness, and scattered to fulfill the great commandment and the great commission as missionaries to the world for God's glory and for our joy. 
that we get a chance to serve God. That's a pretty good picture, a pretty good definition of what the church is supposed to be. So in light, though, of of a lot of misconceptions about the church, I want to revisit some of those and tell you what the church should be, I think. The church is not a building, it's the body of Christ. A building is an inanimate thing, just brick and mortar and stuff like that. That's not the church. The church is made up of believers. Jesus is the head of the church, and we make up the body of the church. And in order for the body to function like it needs to, just like my hand is made for hand things, my feet for walking, my eyes for seeing, God needs everybody that's part of the church. In other words, for day three church to be all that day three church ought to be, we need every member of day three church doing what God has equipped them to do. You see, it's alive because it's the body of Christ. You as a believer, I as a believer, we are part. We make up the body of Christ. And even though we use this phraseology a lot of times, well, I'm going to church. (laughs) You don't go to church. It's not a place you go. It's something you are. If you know Christ is your Savior, you are the church. Two completely different things. Next misconception, let me kind of correct it. The church is not a quick stop location for dispensing out the sacraments, but it's a place where grace is proclaimed and received by faith through the gospel of Christ. That's what the church ought to be about. Us proclaiming God's amazing grace, proclaiming the gospel that people through faith can be redeemed and belong in the family of God for all eternity. The church is not the world's moral, the world's moral police force. Because, you see, when you have that attitude, here's what you do. You kind of draw a line in the sand and say, or build a wall, and you say, well, you know, if you're like me, you can come. But if you're not like me, and you're not following all the rules I think you ought to follow, then we don't want you around. When the church ought to be this, it ought to be a place for people who are broken by their sin and broken by their choices in life. It ought to be a place where they can find mercy and grace. People are beat up enough out there. They don't need to come here just for us to kick them around a little bit more. We need to be a place that offers mercy and grace and shows them the compassion of Jesus when they come through the doors of this place. Church also is not the headquarters for political policies, but a place that exalts the King of Kings. You want to fix our culture, you want to fix your life, you want to fix your family, you want to fix the church, affect the community. What you need to do is let the King of Kings sit on His throne in your life. And this church needs to let the King of Kings sit on the throne of this church. The church is not just a weekly meeting place for spiritual activities, but it should be a place of equipping people and sending God directed spiritual activities, mission work, changing people's lives all across this globe. And I'll talk more about that in just a moment. That, I think, gives us a little bit of a picture of what the church should be. That's the definition. second main word we're looking at today is perception. And the reason we need to be concerned about how our culture perceives the church And how the church is perceived in the world today is this. Since we're the body of Christ, we're supposed to look like the body of Christ. And if we're not looking like the body of Christ, we need to fix something. 
There's a book that was written in 2007. David Kinnaman wrote a book entitled Unchristian. What a new generation. In a new generation, he's talking about late teens to early 30s. What a new generation really thinks about Christianity and why it matters. And he did a lot of extensive research in this age bracket. And here's some of the stuff that he found out. 91% of that age bracket from late teens to early 30s view the church as anti-homosexual. Now, let me speak to that. Does the Bible say homosexuality is a sin? Yes, it does. But does the Bible say it's a sin all to itself? No, it doesn't. So if I'm going to make someone feel unwelcome and say, we don't really want you to come in the doors of the church, then not only do I need to make someone feel unwelcome because they wrestle with this thing called homosexuality, if they're wrestling with alcohol or drugs or, or you know, being a thief or whatever the case might be, looking at pornography, we need to just say, well, we don't want you either. Because we come across evidently that age group that what we're about is just hating homosexuals. It's one thing to tell people it's a sin and it's wrong. It's another thing to hate somebody over it. 87% view the church as judgmental. Why? Well, because of what I just said, you know. 85% view the church as hypocritical. Why? Because we're judgmental. Turning our nose down on other people. When we're guilty of some of the same things ourselves. 78% 78% view the church as old-fashioned. Next stat. 75% view the church as too involved in politics. 72% say the church is out of touch with the reality. 70% say the church is insensitive to others. 68% say the church is boring. So that's the viewpoint that from late teens to early 30s that they discovered in this research that people have. It sounds like we need to fix something, doesn't it? And when they asked the same people that were very negative about church, about Jesus, while they had a negative perception of the church, they had a very positive perception about Jesus. Somewhere there's a missing link there. Because we're supposed to be about Jesus. Jesus is supposed to be the head of the church. And if we're propagating Jesus as we should, being Jesus as we should in our culture, then there shouldn't be that much of a distinction between what they view the church to be and how they view Jesus. So I'm just saying perception-wise, on this Easter Sunday, we might need to recognize that there's things that we possibly need to fix in the church. Because the church a lot of times doesn't look like the early church in Acts chapter 2. Third word is this, mission. What should the church do? And once again, the reason we're dealing with this on Easter is because in light of what Christ did for me, in light of what Christ did for you on the cross, we need to be confronted with what we ought to be doing as the church. And you might feel blindsided. You can blame God. He told me to blindside you. You might have thought you'd come in today and hear what you are used to hearing, but that's not what's supposed to happen today. I'm telling you, he wants us to be confronted with the fact of what he did and what should we do in light of that. In light of how he suffered on the cross for our sins, what should we be doing as the church?
Can I, can I challenge you to do something? And, and, and maybe not now, but, but pull aside maybe later today since it's Easter and do this. Will you honestly pull aside and get in your mind how Jesus suffered for you? The pain that he went through, everything that Jesus did. I mean, really, sit there and think about it. And I dare you to fully think about what Jesus did and you not somehow feel motivated to do something for him. If you will honestly, in your mind, think about how he suffered and what he did for us, we ought to be motivated to serve him. So as we think about our mission, we'll talk about the model and then, you know, the mission. There's a model given us in Acts chapter 2 that I think we need to stay aware of. Because I think in the early church, there's some things modeled there that the church still needs to practice. And we need to check ourselves maybe against what was taking place here in the early church. Acts chapter 2 said this, And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And all came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. All who believed were together and had all things in common, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. I want us to look at the model of the church in three categories. First of all, they were a devoted church. They were devoted to discipleship. It said they, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. I want to submit to you some things that have to happen for that to happen. If they're going to be devoted to the apostles' teaching, they have to show up and hear it, don't they? They have to attend. They have to be attentive. I know we live in a, in a culture today that everything, you know, we've, we've got short attention spans and everything like that that so bombards us for our attention and it's hard for us to focus many times. I hope you'll pray every Sunday before you come to church, whether you're going here or somewhere else. I hope you'll pray that when you're there, you will be attentive and get what God wants you to get. Not just so you can hear it, but for application. We don't need this stuff out of the Bible just for head knowledge to where we say, I know that, I know the history of this. We need it in order to apply it to our lives and use it in our lives. They're devoted in fellowship. It said in fellowship and the breaking of bread. In other words, they were having community with each other. You, you know what the Baptist view of fellowship is? Let's get together and have a chicken fried chicken dinner. Have a covered dish dinner. They, you know, that, that's the picture we have of fellowship. You can fellowship at a dinner like that. The Christian fellowship goes way beyond just eating together. That's why you need to be involved in something like a small group. We have home teams here. and I, you, I'll be honest with you, I was very discouraged this spring in the number of people we had to participate. And here's why. It's not like we want to know we've got everybody involved in a home team so we can feel good about ourselves. It's the fact that you need it. You need to be in community with other believers. You need people praying for you. You need to study the Bible together. You need to hold each other accountable. You see, it's a good thing. It's a thing for you that you need to have in your life. And they were devoted to that, to fellowship. 
They're also devoted to prayer. Said the prayers. They were spending time seeking God. They were spending time having communion with God, seeking direction from Him. This may be the biggest problem area in most Christians' lives because I dare say there's no one here that probably is praying as much as we need to pray. Not just in the life of an individual, but even in the life of a church. It was modeled there. They, they were devoted to prayer. They were devoted to unity. It said, and all who believed were together and had all things common. Here's a radical thought. Christians get along with each other. I mean, they, they were there in, in, together with each other. They had all things common. In other words, they, you know, especially the things of the faith. They weren't arguing and debating. They weren't being jealous over each other and things like that. They were sharing in unity, not just in the fact that they'd get together and eat or share their food with each other or share the Lord's Supper with each other, but they, I believe, were, were unified in their doctrine and in serving together and ministry together. And I know that's hard for you to accept. Christians getting along because we've seen it model the opposite way so much. God help us. You know why some people don't want to come to church? Because they've heard so much about infighting and backbiting and stuff like that among Christians. They've got enough of that out in the world. They think, if I'm going to get it there, I don't want to go. They were together. You know, I said, well, you know, some believers are like, but you don't know how this person is. You don't know what this person did to me. Did they nail you to a cross? I think Jesus said, Father, forgive them. Well, I like a lot of Christians, but some of them I just can't really stand to be around. You better get over it. If that person is an authentic Christian, you're going to be together for all eternity. (laughs) They're also devoted to ministry. They were selling their possessions and their belongings, and they were distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. They were so buying in to ministering to people that if even it was necessary, they would sell stuff that they owned, their own possessions, in order to meet a need, in order for ministry to take place. That's how sold out they were, how generous they were in their hearts. They were devoted to worship. Day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God. They were attending worship. They were worshiping even in their homes, having a community together. They had glad hearts, generous, giving hearts, praising God. See, that's why we ought to, when we come to this place on Sunday morning, don't take the first few minutes for granted. I I got a little bit of a pet peeve right now, and if you're guilty of this, uh, you know, and, and sometimes I'll tell you, now Daryl may have to run out and check on something or whatever, but if you're guilty of just standing out there, just running your mouth to somebody and talking, when worship is taking place in here, you better get in here or I'm about ready to tell some of you you need to come in here. We're worshiping God. We're bad. We're renowned for this ever since we began. And some of you will come in last minute, come in late and everything like that. If you go to your job late all the time, why show up to worship the God of the universe late? You, you ought to come in this place and be here ready and be energized from the first note that the band plays and be ready to worship God. 
We need to be devoted to that as a church. They were devoted to worship. That's a model that you can see in the early church in Acts. Not only were they a devoted church, they were a favored church. They were so authentic and so fulfilling what God was calling them to do that the results of them being that kind of church led to the Bible telling us having favor with all the people. You see, if, if we would be the church as we should be the church, there ought to be a sense of awe that falls not just upon us, but even the community. People ought to be at all at what God is doing through the church. Authenticity is said in many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. God was moving in great ways to show that they were authentic. God was working through their lives. Harmony, we already talked about that. All that believed were together and had all things in common. Integrity, they had favor with all the people. Why? Because they were being authentic. They were being what God called them to be. They weren't being fake, they weren't being false, and they were ministering to people around them. And because of all that, numerical growth was taking place. The Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. So I'm just of the opinion that the church would be the church. Remember all those stats I read to you a minute ago about how that age group views the church? Just maybe if we would be the church we ought to be, that age group would favor us and view us differently. But the church is also a persecuted church in the New Testament. Acts chapter 7, Stephen stoned to death. Acts chapter 8, we're told this. And on that day, a great persecution began against the church of Jerusalem. Yes, we can have favor by being the church that we need to be, but guess what you can also face and experience, and that's persecution. Jesus warned his disciples up front, and it's a warning for us. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. Can I ask you a serious question that's going to hurt? It hurt me thinking about it. I wrote it down. I typed it. Real serious question for us to consider on Easter. Are we doing enough for Jesus to cause us to face any persecution at all? I mean, really, are you doing anything in your life that is sold out enough for Jesus Christ that people around you look at you as weird and maybe persecute you a little bit? Or maybe our problem is we're not facing persecution because the church looks so much like the world. I know it hurts, but I think in light of what Jesus did for us, it hurt what he did for us then maybe we ought to consider that and ask that of ourselves. That's the model of the church. It was a devoted church. They experienced favor, but they also experienced persecution. I want to close with this, literally just looking at the mission of the church for a moment, the mission of the church. Earlier I told you the the church means called out ones. And that's who we are. He has called us out of our sin unto himself. 
But as I look in the New Testament, I discover that the called out ones ought to be the going out ones. In John chapter 17, Jesus said this, As you sent me into the world, he's praying there to the Father, as you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. When you look at the Greek words that's used there, the word as means just as or in the same manner. In other words, just as God the Father sent Jesus into this world, Jesus sends us to fulfill his mission in this world. The word for sent literally means to be set apart or sent on a mission. It's the Greek word that we get our word for apostle from. So in a real way, all of us who know Christ as our Savior, we have a mission to perform. We're to be the apostles for Jesus Christ, the disciples for Jesus Christ in this world. We're not just to be the ones that come and sit. We're not just to come and stay inside the four walls of the church. We're to be the going out ones. Also, we ought to be this. The church is a commission church. It's commissioned with a mission. Commissioned with a mission. Jesus came up and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I command you. And lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. See, Jesus literally said this. He literally gave this to us as a mission. And most believers will say, oh yeah, I agree with that. But it's one thing to agree with it. It's another thing to buy into it and do it. Jesus said when he came up to them, sit therefore. Is that what he said? But yeah, we're good at that. We'll come on Sunday, we'll sit, we'll go away, we'll come back the next Sunday, we'll sit, we'll go away, we'll come back the next Sunday, we'll sit. But that's not what Jesus said. He said, go. He didn't say sit, he said, go, therefore. And the word therefore points back to what he just said. All authority is given to me in heaven and earth. Because of the all authority that has been given to Jesus, we're to therefore go. We're to make church members of all nations. Is that what the Bible says? In other words, as long as they come down and they sign their name on a membership roll and they'll come to church and they'll go home and they'll keep coming back and maybe bring their tithe with them and things like that, we ought to be happy. No, that's not what the Bible said. Jesus told us to make disciples, not make church members. Produce people who will follow Him. We need to click on follow. And don't click unfollow. We need to continue following Him. Baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Teaching them to be obedient to Jesus. To observe all that He's commanded. And before we start making excuses about us doing that, about you doing that, Jesus said, I'm with you always, even at the end of the age. In other words, we can do it because He's on our side. So, so the church is commissioned with a mission. We're to be on mission for Him. The church should also be witnesses about Christ. Jesus came up to his disciples. They had come together. They were asking him, Lord, is this the time that you're going to restore the kingdom to Israel? 
See, we're good at doing that. We're good about debating stuff, asking about stuff. You know, there's this new book that this fellow's written that wrote an old book several years ago. He named a day that Jesus was coming back several years ago. Guess what? We're still here. He's written a new book. He's missed it twice already. Three strikes, you're out in baseball anyway, aren't you? So this guy's written a new book saying, you know, it's going to happen this spring. And people will sit around and debate and talk about things like that. And I think Jesus wants to say to us the same thing that he said to his disciples. More or less, when they start asking Jesus, are you going to set up the kingdom now? Jesus more or less tells them, quit worrying about that. It's none of your business. What you need to do is do what I've called you to do. Because he said to them, it's not for you to know the times of the epochs which the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria and even to the uttermost part or the remotest parts of the world. See, that's a pattern that God has for us. We're to be his witnesses here locally. We're to be his witnesses regionally. We're to be his witnesses across our own country, our nation. We're to be his witnesses to the uttermost part of the world, to the remotest parts of the world. And when Jesus gave that command, when he gave that commission and told these people to go and be his witnesses, go even to the uttermost parts of the world and share his gospel, Most theologians believe he had about 120 followers at that point. Now think about that. Jesus has told 120 people to go and change the whole world with the gospel. That sounds like a pretty daunting task, doesn't it? We had 119 in our first service. So that's about the number of people. It would be like us telling our first service, go change the world. We have more than that in this service. It would be like us being told, we need to go change the world. And we'll start thinking, but look, we're just a few. You see, it's not just us. It's the power of the Holy Spirit. And while there was 120 on the day of Pentecost, 3,000 people ratted to the church. Man, I'd love to have a day like that one day, wouldn't you? 3,000 people one day. And from that time to now, people estimate there's probably several billion believers in the world today. But it started with Jesus telling a group of 120 people to go and be my witnesses. See, all we have to do is be obedient to him and go and do what he, what he calls us to do. And even though there's so many people that have already been one to Jesus... Right now, there are 5.5 million, probably more than that, because these stats were of a couple of years ago. Right now, there are roughly 5.5 million non-Christians just in North Carolina. There are 120 million unchurched people in the United States. I'm sorry, guys, but this next one just kills me that the number of unchurched has almost doubled from 1991 to 2004. 
not gaining any ground. Going the other direction fast. Then in America, the young church has almost doubled from 1991 until 2004. The U.S. is the largest mission field in the Western Hemisphere. The U.S. is the fifth largest mission field on earth. In America, 3,500 to 4,000 churches close their doors every year. So that's why on this Easter Sunday, instead of us talking about the crucifixion today, we did it last week, was for a reason. In light of what he did for us, what will we do for him? Will we be the church? Will we carry forth the mission that he's given us? Most Easter Sundays... At Day 3 Church, we have the Lord's Supper. We're not doing it today. We're going to do it next week. The reason we're not doing it today is I feel like God clearly did not want us to do it today. Because I want you to leave this place today with this concept in mind. Jesus gave to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. We're the body of Christ today. I want you to leave this place on this Easter Sunday and be challenged with you going forth and being the body of Christ in this world this week. Jesus said, take, drink, this is my blood. This is the new covenant in my blood. I want you to be challenged to go from this place and carry the message of the shed blood of Jesus into our culture. Jesus said, this do in remembrance of me. So instead of us taking the Lord's Supper here this Easter Sunday, go out this week and be the Lord's Supper in a certain way to the culture and the world around us. And as you do so, bring remembrance of Jesus and what he's done for us. Remember him and go out and serve him this week and be the body of Christ. I want to show you a really good reason why I think you ought to do it. How many of you ever heard of laminin? You ever heard of laminin before? If you heard of laminin, raise your hand. Let me just see how many of you have heard about it. Okay. Most of you haven't. Laminin is a glycoprotein in our bodies that is a component of connective tissue basement membrane. That's all the official language, and it promotes cell adhesion. Layman's terms, laminin is the glue that holds our bodies together. God who created us put it there. And if we did not have laminin in our bodies, our cells could not even cling to each other. Our bodies could not even stay together without having laminin. You want to see what it looks like? Anybody got cold chills? The very God that created us put a protein in our bodies that holds our cells together and the picture on the left is a micron photograph of it it's in the shape of the cross the other picture is just a diagram the scientists used to diagram out what it looks like 
That might not mean anything to you, but guys, it amazes me that our Creator, who could have made that shape in any shape He wanted to, decided to make the molecule inside of us that holds our cells together. He decided to make it look like a cross. And in a spiritual way today, what holds us together as believers is the cross of Jesus. And you have that image of the cross literally in your body. I'm just going to suggest that you let it out for others to see. Because of what Jesus did for us, we need to go forth and carry his message to a lost world. Let's pray. Just before I pray, uh, head still bowed and eyes closed. I, I, I realized today on this Easter Sunday, I, I, I spoke probably more to the church than I did to someone that may not be a believer in Christ. But I want to take a moment just before the band plays and just before I pray, and, and I want to tell you, if you don't know Christ as your Savior, and you feel God drawing you to Himself this morning, Man, there's no better time than Easter. What better time than Easter to receive Christ as your Savior? So I'm going to pray for you, and I'm also going to pray for believers. Father, if there's someone here today that does not know Christ as Savior, God, I pray that you would speak to their heart right now. Help them to see that, they, that they've sinned. All of us have sinned. All of us fall short of your glory. God, help them to understand they cannot be good enough. They can't work their way to heaven. Lord, that you took the initiative, that you sent your son to die on a cross in their place, to shed his blood, to pay for their sins. And that he took his life back up on the third day to prove that he had done everything necessary for people to believe in him and have everlasting life. Lord, if there's someone here today that does not know Christ, please draw them to yourself. And give them the faith they need right now to say yes to Jesus. Help them to quit pretending. Help them to quit holding on to any imagined goodness of their own. And realize the only hope they have is Jesus. And Father, for those of us that know Christ as Savior... God, I pray right now you would speak to our hearts clearly, that you would challenge us with a mission that you've put before the church on this Easter Sunday. You loved us so supremely you sent your Son to die for us. God, motivate us. Help us to live for Him. God, help us to share the gospel. God, those statistics that we've looked at today that are God, that are so heartbreaking or should be heartbreaking to us as believers. Father, I pray that you'd even start something today in our lives, just in this church, that with a renewed zeal and effort, that we would go forth and carry the message of Jesus. And God, that we would see those statistics change.
Make us to be the church that you want us to be. For it's in your name we pray. Amen. As the band plays, if you're someone that has some questions about what it means to receive Christ as Savior, I invite you as the band plays to step forward. And we'll have someone to share with you and talk to you about what it means to to trust in Christ. Those of us that already know Him, I dare say none of us think we've been doing what we ought to do. We've not been praying like we ought to pray. We've not been sharing like we ought to share. We've not been letting that image of the cross out of our bodies to where others just see it. I want to challenge you as Christians. Either where you are, bow your head and do some business with God on this Easter Sunday. Or if you so feel impressed, come and kneel up here and say, God, help me to be the Christian I need to be. And help our church to be the church that it needs to be. So band plays, we invite you to come. You are listening to Sermon Audio from Dayton Church. If you have any questions about God, faith, or our church, email us at info at dayfreechurch.com. And for more information, find us on the web at dayfreechurch.com.